So what is the American Library in Paris? American Library in Paris is a lot of things. It's a private lending library. It's also a nonprofit. It's a community of English and non-English speakers who love literature, books. It's a nearly 100-year-old institution. It's also kind of a cultural center to me. There's a lot of different events, workshops, book clubs. Can you tell me a little bit about the Evenings with an Author events at the American Library in Paris? We have authors, scholars, journalists, artists, comedians, actors, musicians, public figures who come and speak for about 45 minutes. Anyone that's coming through Paris that our audience, our community is interested in listening to. The following Evenings with an Author event was recorded live at the American Library in Paris. Our speaker this evening, Tessa Hadley, is the author of six highly acclaimed novels and three collections of short stories. She was elected a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature in 2009 and is also a fellow of the Welsh Academy. Her fiction has garnered widespread critical praise and many awards, including the Edge Hill Short Story Prize and the O. Henry Prize. She is also lauded by fellow writers. Zadie Smith says, few writers give me such pleasure and Hilary Mantel. She is one of those writers a reader can trust. She's often described as a master of realism. I would agree, but in my humble view, her fiction comes to realism through mystery, illuminating aspects and layers of human experience that seem radically, uncannily accurate. Her scenes are so finely drawn that years after reading them, they stay with you almost like one's own lived experience. So I'm absolutely thrilled that she's here with us tonight. Thank you, Audrey, for a lovely introduction, and thank you so much, everybody, for coming out tonight, and very beautiful. We've, My husband and I have made this a pretext for spending a week in Paris, so we're feeling very at ease with the world, and things in general seem quite beautiful, which recently in the middle of British turmoil has not always been the case, so thank you for that opportunity. Um, I haven't prepared anything super formal or written a lecture. I thought what I would do was read some bits from my new novel late in the day, give you a sort of taste of what it's like, and then intersperse that with talking about reading and writing. So I hope that suits you all right. And then, of course, some question, time for questions at the end. So let me put my watch down in front of me like, a, like, a, like an experienced teacher and keep an eye on that. So I will start um, with reading from very near the beginning of Late in the Day, which beautifully in the French edition is called Occasion Tardive. Uh, my accent's terrible, but I just there's something so elegant about that, isn't there? <laughs> um, I'm not going to read from the opening page, partly because I've just, there's sort of something really dramatic happens at the beginning of this novel. And I've read it lots of times. <laughs> so I'm sort of tired of the sound of me doing that. So I'm going to pick it up at about page three or something. To give you a brief introduction, it's a novel really about long marriage, which is sort of 
where I'm at. So it seems an infinitely interesting subject. Um, it's quite a modern subject. We always think we're the age of divorce, but actually we do do plenty of divorcing, but we do lots of staying married for an awfully long time compared to past generations where most marriages were, of course, terminated by death. Um, it's extraordinary how my, my parents, my dad died this summer, but they were on their 64th year together and that's not as unusual as it used to be. So long marriages, what is it when you choose someone rashly in a moment of passion at 23 and then there you are at 63 and you're still with the same person and there's an image that Christine, who's my sort of probably the, the character in late in the day that I stay with most closely, although I divide the perceptions and the telling of the story around several characters. But Christine has a moment where she thinks about this business of staying married to somebody for a long time. And she thinks it's like that folk tale where your lover becomes enchanted and in the story he's captured by the fairies. And to get him back, you have to pull him off the horse and hang on to him while he metamorphoses from a lion to a monster to a tiny creature. And I sort of think that sense of hanging on to each other while the other person goes through a whole sequence of total self-transformations. And of course, they're doing the same thing back to you. So that's sort of the subject of my novel. And I thought, not one couple hanging on to each other for a long time, but two. That, that was just a novelist's instinct for having lots of stuff to write, lots of story to tell. So I've got two couples, and I sort of, I write about them in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. And very early on, before I, when I was just dreaming the novel, before I'd started writing it at all, I... I knew what the strongest thing I could deliver to these two pairs to, to make stuff happen, to precipitate their story, would be, uh, very cruelly, to have one of the four die. So that's what I do. I, and I, almost the nicest, the nicest man, perhaps the nicest of the four of them, drops dead. Um, and as soon as I knew that I was going to do that in the cruel and merciless way that writers do this to their characters because they know it will be strong to write. Um, I also knew I didn't want to do it three quarters of the way through. That, that, that would be hard to write. You would, you would have to manage because it would feel like comedy, like social comedy for so long. And then you would deliver this slightly malevolent blow to your character and to your readers. And that's, that's quite hard to handle. It's doable. Writers can do anything, really, if, if, if they can. But I, I thought that would be hard, and so I sort of knew I had to start the book with the death, just formally, just for the structure of it to work, to, for the story to bear the weight of that disaster when it happened. It had to come in right away and not be saved as a surprise. And then once I knew that, I knew that the structure would have to be a little bit complicated. So what I do effectively is run this story of the present day when poor Zachary dies. And we know that from the beginning. And 
all that follows on and unfolds from that death is told in the present day. But every so often, we then go back in intervening chapters into the past, and we meet these people when they were young, this foursome when they were young, when they were very young, when they're first getting together, then when they have young children, and they're two couples with young daughters, and then when they're sort of in their lovely prime in their 40s, kind of the, the difficulty of young parenthood is over and, and they're good at what they do and they know who they are. And, and I set that in Venice. I might read a little bit of that. Anyway, so I am reading to you from very close to the beginning of the novel. A phone call interrupts Alex and Christine at home one evening. And on the other end of the phone is their dear friend Lydia. And Lydia is saying that Zachary has dropped dead at work. He's probably had a heart attack. And it, that, the novel opens with that news. And picking it up on page four, Christine is on her way downstairs from having this awful phone call to tell Alex, her husband, the news. And it's just this little thing she does on the way down, which is also very important for my book. On her way to tell Alex, Christine paused outside the open door of her studio, where the shapes of her work waited faithfully for her in the dusk. Bottles of ink, twisted tubes of paint, the Chinese porcelain pot with her pens and brushes, the pin board stuck with postcards and pictures torn from magazines, feathers, stained cloth, scraps of weathered plastic. Creamy sheets of thick paper laid out on her desk waited for her mark. Primed canvases were stacked against the wall, pieces in progress were on the easel or pinned onto boards. She came to this scene of her labours each morning, like coming to a religious observance, performing little rituals she had never mentioned to anyone. Her strongest desire these days was to be at work in there, standing up at the easel or head and shoulders bowed over the paper on her desk in concentration, absorbed in her imitation of forms, her inventions. But now... The idea of this work, the fixed point by which she steered, was sickening. It seemed fraudulent, the sticky project of her own vanity. She closed the door on it quickly. Then she opened it again. There was a key in the lock which she turned sometimes when she didn't want to be interrupted. She took out this key and locked the studio from the outside, put the key in her jeans pocket. The music was still playing in the front room. Was it your mother on the phone? Alex asked. Her heart lunged in thick beats in her chest. She didn't know if she could speak. It was terrible to have to ruin his happiness with this news, standing over him where he lay propped up on cushions on the sofa, untroubled or no more troubled than usual. It was Lydia. And what did she want? Alex. I have to tell you, and then she does. And then I'll just read on. This is at the end of the first section, so we're still in the present day of that awful news. We're, we're a couple of nights later, and uh, one of the things that's happened is that Alex 
has driven up to Glasgow to um, tell Lydia and Zachary's daughter, who's an art student in Glasgow in Scotland, uh, has driven up to Glasgow to tell Grace the news. And Grace has, he's driven Grace back down. Uh, Lydia has come to stay for these awful nights in the flat with Alex and Christine. Other members of the family, Max, uh, Zachary's brother, is there. They've all eaten a supper together, talking in horror and dismay about what's happened. And this is um, the end of this section. It seemed airless in their bedroom while Christine undressed. She pushed the Velux skylight open to its furthest extent and the hot night rolled in from outside, tainted and gritty. We're in London, by the way. Hence the tainted and the gritty. She was tensely aware of the others sleeping or not sleeping below her in the crowded flat. Lydia in the spare room, Max on the sofa. Alex had wanted to put Max on the pull-out bed in Christine's studio. He'd been surprised to find the door locked. She'd shaken her head at him when he asked if she knew where the key was. Just put him on the sofa in the front. She and Alex lay side by side in bed in the dark like effigies, on their backs in their nightclothes, with their legs stretched out and their feet sticking up, staring up at nothing, not touching yet she felt the heat of his skin scorching hers. Sleep seemed very remote. Was it strange to be in their home, she asked, when you went round for Lydia's clothes? Zachary's things must have been lying round everywhere. I was preoccupied, Alex said, finding all the bits and pieces Lydia asked for, and then there were voices outside, and without thinking I was so sure that it was Zachary coming home until I remembered it couldn't be. She felt for his hand which lay between them on the sheet. He grasped hers strongly in his hot, dry grip. They didn't often hold hands. Christine wasn't easily demonstrative. Alex thought that holding hands was for children, not for men touching women. They didn't often talk, for that matter, not any longer with this confessional closeness. Christine felt sometimes as though the long years of their familiarity had grown across her throat like a membrane so that she couldn't easily speak to him and kept herself hidden. Now, though, they must be kind to each other at all costs. You did well driving up to Glasgow to tell Grace, she said. That was a good thing to do. What was Lydia thinking? She whispered to him to be careful. Lydia might hear them. She was only downstairs. Alex lowered his voice hoarsely to imagine giving the, her daughter the news so casually on her mobile phone. Lydia isn't thinking straight, of course. Oh, she's dangerous when she doesn't think. This was another old pattern between them. His criticism of Lydia, Christine's defense of her friend. Alex had sometimes in the past implied that Lydia was too shallow to make Zachary happy as he deserved. This is a catastrophe for her. It's our business to take care of her, Christine said. I, I want to take care of her. I know. She feels it. She appreciates it. Alex turned on his side to face her in the dark. He put his hand on her pyjama top onto her breast. 
Christine was shocked by the violence of her reluctance to make love to him. She knew they ought to be opened up to each other. Alex was right, his instincts were always good, more generous than hers. She half longed for the comfort he wanted to give her and to comfort him. In her mind, she understood how sex and death were both part of the mystery of entrances and exits, both opening onto this same strange place where they all belonged now in the sudden shadow of Zachary's death. But her body contracted against him in spite of her mind. She felt withdrawn inside her flesh, concealed in its sealed chamber, fierce against its violation. She wanted to try to explain to him that she couldn't bear to be touched, not now, not yet. But she couldn't. The words seized up in her chest, they wouldn't come out. She pushed his hand away without a word, turned over with her back to him and pretended to sleep. In the middle of the night, Lydia came into their room. They woke confusedly to see her standing up at the end of the bed in her white nightdress, looking taller than she actually was against the faint light from the Velux, with her hair hanging down like a figure from a melodramatic play or an opera. Lydia, can't you sleep, Christine said. I'm too frightened to sleep, and my feet are cold. Christine jumped up. She went rummaging in the chest of drawers for a pair of socks for her friend. Get in under the duvet, she said. Keep warm. When Lydia climbed into the bed, her movements were stiff-backed as an old woman. She did actually seem to be shuddering with cold in spite of the warm night. Alex said nothing at first. Lay turned away, though he must have been awake. I'm frightened, Lydia said. Jane Ogden told me that Zachary vomited black blood... Now, why did she have to tell you that, Christine said soothingly. Why did you need to know? I feel safer in here between you two. Christine felt for her friend's icy feet under the duvet. Tenderly, she put on the woolen socks, then got back into bed beside her, putting an arm round her where she lay between them against Alex's turned back. Then he turned round and embraced her too. Poor Lydia, he said. Oh, Alex... I wish that I had died instead and he was still here. Don't be silly. You're what we have left. You're all more precious to us. At first, Christine thought that Lydia would never sleep. She could feel the panic racing in her friend's body like an animal's fast metabolism. But very quickly, Lydia's breathing changed and grew shallow. She began twitching and jerking unconsciously. It was Christine's turn to lie aridly awake. She was too hot. Lydia's, Lydia's feverish dreams seemed to be burning her up. Christine couldn't tell whether Alex was also awake. She half expected him to slip out of bed, go down to sleep more comfortably in the spare room. But he didn't move. Whoops. So, a sort of taste from the opening section of the novel and one of the fears I had for this novel, each novel as you embark on it or in the early stages of embarking on it, you, you develop very specific anxieties. You think, oh dear, this book's got that problem. How am I going to do that? And one of my fears was that it would be too sad actually, because that's quite sad stuff that I've read you. Um, so if I do another reading towards the end, it's from a, a, a joyous lighter 
fun bit, and I, I, I worked hard anyway at, at balancing the genuine sadness. Of course, if I'm writing a book about this subject, how can I not really render the truth of what it might feel like to have that loss? And at the same time, I, I believe that the novel's purpose, point, is to, to be a pleasure. So, so one also wants the book to be full of pleasure and colour and so. That, yeah, that, those, those actually I've, I've already obviously neurotically mentioned my two fears that I had for this book. One was that the structure would be too fussy, but I think, I think it's all right. And the other was this, this sadness problem. It's very interesting that, I, uh, yeah. How, how you know the problems are there in advance before you start, but you, you just decide that you're going to tackle them and take them on and deal with them. Anyway, what I thought I would talk to you about, I, I, I'll talk first of all, I think, about reading. And then, I don't mean reading aloud, I mean reading, readers, you, you lot, that, that every writer utterly and entirely depends on, because otherwise you're just saying something alone in a, in a blocked room. So readers are crucial. There's a marvellous short story by the German writer Heinrich Böll. I used to read him lots, and I haven't revisited, and I don't know how well they've worn, but this story has stuck in my mind forever. I think they've probably worn very well. I still think, I still spot people in the street and I think, ah, oh, it's a Heinrich Böll man with a Heinrich Böll wife. In fact, I have to say, there were a Heinrich Böll couple in our hotel. <laughs> um, any of you who've read him will know that's not that slightly unsettling. Anyway, he wrote a wonderful book about a writer giving a reading. And at the end of it, there are plenty of people who sort of queue in the line and want to talk. And nearly all of them have their own unpublished book that they're longing to press upon him. And eventually, one of them is just a reader. And the writer kisses him, takes him out to dinner, invites him to his home, wants to treat him with reverence and honour him because of this wonderful, rare thing, the reader, is the treasure upon which writing depends. And in my life, my bit of history that I've, that I've lived beginning in, in the 1950s, um, libraries and reading have been an inseparable thing. And so this just seemed, here I am, in a beautiful one, a lovely one, as Audrey said, insisting on the prime importance still and value of actual printed solid books in your hand. Nothing, nothing against e-readers if that's what you want to do and if you need it to travel with, all very sensible. And I think, right, if, I, if my sight goes, I will be so grateful to be able to enlarge the text and all of that. But in the end, nothing can match the beauty of books. And, and the technology is perfect. Hold it in your hand, put it in your pocket, Open it up anywhere, anytime. You don't need a battery. It doesn't need to be charged. And you can, if you want, write on it or stick little stickers into it. It's joyous. And then, and, and a house without books doesn't look so lovely. It's a, also a beautiful decorative item, but that's probably rather shallow-minded. Um, so, libraries. Um, when I was a little girl, 
in my Bristol school, that's in the west of England, we went to the library, the whole class, once a week. And boys and girls holding hands in a crocodile traipsed down from the school, about a 15-minute walk, and we all took out three or five books from the library. And that was such a crucial ritual, pilgrimage, religious experience for me. Peculiar, shy little girl coming from a house where there were books, no question about it. There were lots of books, but my parents were kind of inconsistent readers. They weren't entirely book people, a bit more music people perhaps. My dad was a was a jazz trumpeter. Not, he was a semi-professional jazz trumpeter and a school teacher. Um, so there were, there were books on the shelves, but there was no one to say, you must read this, start with this, this is good, this is not so good, it, which, which I'm kind of grateful for in a way, because there I just was in that library, making up my own mind, trying anything and everything with no prejudice as to what the greats were or what the sanctioned, correct, good girl reading was. But it, it was the whole field of fiction and non-fiction was open to me. Um, my husband, we've been talking about this in the last few days, he came from a home with no books. So the library was even more important to him as a little boy. Equally, he went to the library, actually not with his school, but just of his own volition. He was a strange little boy, I think. <laughs> anyway, and he, we were, we, we've been looking around the Louvre and the Sainte-Chapelle and we've, trying to piece together our French history, which is very ropey, but what we can remember is learning it from those books we borrowed. Um, I can't actually think, I mean, the, the Three Musketeers, The Count of Monte Cristo, very unsound sources for accurate history, <laughs> but you've got to start somewhere. And I, I'm ashamed to say I've got a feeling we probably finished there as well. <laughs> so it's all quite Count of Monte Cristo as far as we're concerned, and The, the Four Musketeers. Um, so where do you start putting together, on the one hand, a picture of the world and history, if not by browsing in books and reading the young Victoria, Wolfe at Quebec, um, Clive in India, all these books completely banished from our libraries now, very, very politically incorrect, but they were good starting places. They, they made my framework. Um, do you think there are any children now who are reading those kind of fictions or their equivalent? I don't know. I hate those. I hate that doom-mongering which is endlessly imagining that it's all up. And all the children I know are so wise and clever and actually fascinated by everything. So we won't, we won't do any doom-mongering. And, and they were sort of crazy old imperial books in, in England in those days, I have to say, in which monstrous rapacious colonial exploiters were, were the heroes and so on. Um, and in fiction, just not really knowing one thing from another, but finding one's taste by reading. And finding, I mean, taste was not on my mind. I, I don't think I even, I didn't have a sensory. I, it was finding the, the world finding escape from the smallness of your own life, which was your life, and you loved it, but it was t 
tiny and, and also you were anxious in it. And suddenly, through books, you, you could be Anne of Green Gables and Laura Ingalls Wilder. And um, one of the most important books I read as a child, and it's still a reference point, and it really is a very great children's book. I don't know how many of you know it. Written in the 1950s by, by Philippa Pierce called Tom's Midnight Garden. A few of you. It, okay, spoilers, but you, you'll forgive me. And if you're smart, you see it coming anyway, but not as a child. Uh, it's about a little boy in the 50s. I was completely, you know, I was reading it in the 60s. It was contemporary as far as I was concerned. Who is sent to live with a rather dour, uncommunicative aunt and uncle in a flat in a tall London house. Not London House. Oh, where's the house? Cambridge, actually. I'm just thinking, because they skate to Ely, don't they? So Cambridge, and a tall house somewhere that my child mind didn't properly focus. Uh, because his brother's got measles, how things come around, one would have thought that would have been consigned to history, but we seem to be have measles back in. Anyway, his brother's got measles. He's staying rather miserably with this uncle and aunt in a slightly grim flat with a dismal yard out the back with dustbins in it. At night, Tom, the boy, wanders downstairs, opens the back door, and instead of the yard, there's a beautiful garden. Mystery, it's just the magic of the book. First night, it's just that. The next night, or a few nights later, he tries again, and the garden is there again. It's never there in the day. In the day, it's just a miserable yard with dustbins. He meets a girl, they have adventures together, they go on a wonderful skating night eventually. Um, there's a crusty old, in the modern 1950s part of the novel, there's a crusty old landlady, a cross old lady downstairs who winds the clock in the hall and doesn't like little boys. Of course, in the end, it works out that the beautiful young girl that he meets in the past is the old lady. That was what I learned from that book. I, I suddenly got it. I thought, the old ladies are the young girls of yesterday. That's what happens in time. There is no deeper metaphysical lesson to be learned in the universe than that one. And I remember getting it at aged eight or something through that story. So those books in the library opened up the world for me, really. And oh, I'm, I'll just, yes, I, I'll do another reading in a moment, but I'll. I also remember promoting myself to adult books. That was the children's section I'm talking about, although that just goes to show, doesn't it, that everything can be in a good children's book. Every, every adult lesson that's pretty scary, that little girls grow up into old ladies, all that frightening stuff. Uh, it, it can be in a good children's book. But I did eventually promote myself to just up three yellow lino-covered stairs into the adult section, slightly under the suspicious eye of the librarian, who was, wasn't sure it was a good thing, and re-embarked on learning what I liked, trying all sorts of extraordinary people, Hugh Walpole and Compton Mackenzie. I can't really remember what they were like, but I think they didn't make much sense to me. And I, here's a lovely story from that section, because I persevered, and I began to get it, and I began to find the writers I loved, and they began to 
multiply the worlds I had access to and make my comprehension sophisticated and give me experience, because that's a strange thing, but I think books do give us experience. And I particularly like this, I loved complete works because I'd loved Anne of Green Gables. So unfortunately that meant the whole of Compton Mackenzie, although I'm not sure I really got through the whole of him. But there was the whole of Elizabeth Bowen. And these were in beautiful books with lovely little prints on the front, which I was really drawn to. I loved those. I read those books. I hadn't got a clue what was going on in them. I didn't know they were set in, well, let's say, I remember, I, I, I remember reading The Last September. I don't know whether you know Elizabeth Bowen. She's one of my top favorite writers. Mid 20th century, Anglo-Irish, um, sort of upper class, uh, just, a, I mean, up to my mind, knocks Virginia Woolf into a cocked hat, but that's just between us. Um, anyway, so I was reading this hyper-sophisticated prose. I had no idea what happened in the story. Strange stuff happened. People got dressed for dinner, and you think, what are they wearing before they get dressed for dinner? <laughs> But then you work it out. What I loved, the, here's the mystery, and this happened all over again with me, with Henry James, a little bit later. You can love the promise a writer gives you, even when you hardly know what they're saying. The promise is that life is as complicated as these sentences. You, you hardly know what the sentence has said, or who's in love with who, or why it's difficult, but something about the richness and density and sensual exactitude of the words in the sentence, in the paragraph, on the page, delivers to you this promise, and then you set to work learning how to read it and rising to the book until one day you open up the golden bowl by Henry James. You think, oh, yes, what was the problem? <laughs> Maybe, anyway. Um, so, yes, the lovely, the lovely, extraordinary liberation of reading fiction, which is not for spare time or a minor add-on, but seems to me sort of one of the fundamental ways, of course, along with film and great television and, differently, music, but that, that we transcend ourselves and we enter hundreds of other worlds and other ways of seeing. And you can be English and read French books. And you can be English and read American books or Japanese books. And you begin, you begin to enter those places and feel from inside them. Um, okay, that I have talked on. That was obviously a subject I really wanted to get off my chest. I'll, I'll read, I'll read an, an, a bit of more joyous from my novel. Um, so this is quite near the end of the book, but because of that complicated structure I talked about, um, it's we've actually gone back in time, and this is Zachary still alive, and. They are all in their 40s. So I'll read this short little bit. Maybe I'll talk 
very briefly after it about writing, which I've neglected in favour of reading, and then, and then we'll go for questions. Does that sound as... So a bit of delicious Venice. They all five went on the boat to Torcello and had lunch in a garden restaurant beside the path to the cathedral in the shade of an awning that flapped in a breeze so that patches of brilliance went darting across the white tablecloth. Nightingales sang in the undergrowth in the hot light of day. Red wine poured from a glass jug fizzed against the tongue. So... Here we are, Lydia said thoughtfully. Where are we? You're going to love this cathedral, Zachary promised. It's all so simple, so anciently, divinely lucid, in its great fresco, the damned on one side and the saved on the other. The trouble is with the saved, Christine said, is that they can't help looking smug. How good are the good, really, if on the day of... Judgment, they're enjoying being saved while all their dear, sinful friends and relatives are shoveled into the burning pit. Oh, I'd enjoy it, Lydia said, plucking away on my harp, feeling beatified. But Lydia, don't disappoint me, Christine said. Aren't you going to hell? That's where I'm going because I thought you were. All wounds seemed grown over in the present moment of pleasure as they talked and ate their pasta and grilled fish. They were flattered by the thick light under the awning which burnished away marks of ageing in their faces and they felt themselves significant, as if they were arranged around the table for a photograph although they forgot to actually take one. The men were concentrations of darker mass, Alex holding something back, Zachary overspilling his place, jumping up and down to order more food, confer with the cook. The women in their summer dresses, Lydia's white and Christine's splashed with blue flowers, were the bright accents in the comp composition. Christine milky pale under her sun hat, which flecked her with dancing points of light. And Lydia really did look like one of the blessed, with her long oval face and her hair bleached by the sun, knotted demurely at her neck. So, briefly, how does one go from being that besotted child reader with her nose always in a book to the exasperation of relatives to writing? And, of course, the answer is with enormous difficulty and don't do it unless you have to. And, and that is a test. I've, I've taught writing to a lot of students and I would say one of the tests that I have in my mind as to whether they're going to do it, okay, there's talent comes into it, undoubtedly, intelligence, all of that. But the sheer insane need to persevere in the face of all discouragement when any sane person would have given up. And I, I had a long, long apprenticeship, as I like to think of it now, but I wasn't confident. The trouble was with apprenticeship, if you're make, learning to make tables, you will eventually learn to make a table that stands up and is quite nice. No guarantees with the novel. <laughs> so I had written four 
failed novels long ago consigned to um, landfill because they were typed on paper as well. They weren't just electronic, easily deleted things. So, and I have no idea what the mysterious route is to the moment when, just for a bit, just in a paragraph, maybe in a short story, you first think, this is what I have to say. I, I've got it right here. I'm not trying to write somebody else's novel. It, one thing you learn is that while reading, as I've stressed, is vast, writing is tiny. Reading, you have the whole world at your disposal. Writing, you have just this thing that is yours that you can do that, you know, it may stretch to who knows how many, 20 novels, but it will just be that. I sometimes think, I have this image which slightly spoiled by climate change, but I have this image that writing is a bit like coral, where all these writers do their little bit of, of work and they become part of a great reef of literature and the writer dies, obviously, being mortal. and leaves the little tiny bit of their contribution, their portion. I mean, all right, Proust is bigger than um, Laura Ingalls Wilder, perhaps. I don't know. I think Laura Ingalls Wilder's probably moved as many people. Who knows? And luckily, there is no league table, and there's no final judgment ever, thank goodness. So that coral image, I, I quite like that, except that now it's all being attacked by hot water and everything. Um, so, painfully, yes, it had to do with f feeling that I had tried, I tried to write all these awful novels that were like a Nadine Gordimer novel or a J.M. Curtsy novel, all the people I admired so much, and were fake. And instead, resigning oneself in a way, it, you know, it wasn't like I'd been, I, it hadn't occurred to me that this obvious small thing was what I knew and that that's where I had to start. And after wandering in this big, unfriendly plain, this desert that where I could only write false sentences artificially, not telling the truth, faking it, I suddenly seemed, in a couple of short stories first, to, to find my way to the door, put the key in, turn it, go inside and find myself at home at last. So I don't know whether that story is a story of encouragement or discouragement. As I say, one of the tests for writers, I think, is this inability to stop trying, actually, when it seems is making you miserable, you don't seem to be any good at it. Um, but somehow, three weeks after that publisher's slip, that says, we found your main character boring. <laughs> Three weeks later, you're thinking, oh, there's an idea. That, that's the good one. That's going to work. All right. Thank you so much, Tessa. Thank you for your questions. Evenings with an author and other weeknight programs at the library are free and open to the public thanks to support from Grow at Annenberg, our members, and those who attend programs. 
For more information about the American Library in Paris and to see a full calendar of our Evenings with an Author events, visit AmericanLibraryInParis.org.